0: Well, we're beginning a new series this morning. As we start into the book of Matthew, chapter 5 through 7, we discover the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so we're going to be looking at... Uh, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. They're bringing a great number of speeches and, and, and writings that have been made throughout history that have transitioned across generations. Let me just share with you a few from our American history as we begin first one is this in his speech Franklin Delano Roosevelt a president said this is preeminently the time to speak the truth the whole truth frankly and boldly nor need we shrink from honesty facing conditions in our country today this great nation will endure as it has endured will revive and will prosper so First of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Martin Luther King, in his infamous speech, said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Abraham Lincoln Said fourscore and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Jesus himself has, has also uttered some famous words that have been recorded for us and his greatest message that is ever recorded is this message which we referred to as the sermon on the mount which is found here in the book of Matthew chapter 5 through 7 but what is the sermon on the mount i mean what what is its purpose why is it recorded for us as this lengthy uh, conversation that he has with people beyond all the other things that he said Why is it so important that the Apostle Matthew thought that it should be recorded as the largest single block of teaching from Jesus? John R. W. Stott, one of our uh, biblical scholars today in our generation, has said this, The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best-known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood, and certainly it is the least obeyed. It is the nearest thing to a manifesto that he ever uttered, for it is his own description of what he wanted his disciples, his followers, to be and to do. And he says, to my mind, no two words sum up this, its intention better or indicate more clearly its challenge to the modern world than the expression, Christian counterculture. And this Christian counterculture is the life of the kingdom of God, a fully human life indeed, but lived out under the divine rule. Now, Dr. James T. Fisher, he's a non-Christian psychologist. In his book, A Few Buttons Missing, he said this, if you were to take the sum total of all the authoritative articles ever written by the most qualified of psychologists and psychiatrists on the subject of mental health, and if you were to combine them, refine them, and, and, and cleave out of the excess verbiage, and if you were to have these unadulterated bits of pure scientific knowledge concisely expressed by the most capable of living poets, you would have an awkward and an incomplete summary of the Sermon on the Mount. That's pretty interesting from a non-Christian. You see, when Jesus came, he challenged and he rejected the, the standard of life by which men throughout all history in every different society established in their civilizations on their own. Our earthly standards and values, they fall way too short of what God's expectations are for us. These that we're going to look at this morning, Beatitudes, they are written here at the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, and they reveal the attitudes of the heart, which God, He he appreciates and He values, and He expects to be found in each one of His followers. As Christians, we've been taught that we are to adapt to a value system which is displayed in the mind and in the life of Jesus Christ. We are to be like Him. This sermon represents Christ in a nutshell in the character in which we are to live by. Now the values are essential for Christian life and, and they're not debatable nor are they able to be compromised or even ignored. These values are values that we are to live by. They're the motivation behind our actions. While we both They're kind of restrictive in nature, but they're also liberating in their nature because they have this set of boundaries for our behavior. And when we finally have boundaries, we can understand fully the freedom that we are given in Christ. Now, while we cannot be saved by our value system, our value system defines our salvation position. Matter of fact, we are told that you can test the actions of a man to determine whether or not he's a follower of Christ. Worldly values, those include things like wealth, power, prestige, fame, fortune, revenge, vanity, positions. I mean, they're all very important to those who only live for themselves. Paul, when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, he made this statement in his letter, Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 1, 2, and 3. He says, But as Christians, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And then he says, And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But there's something that has changed in us. We are no longer there because we are following Christ. We don't live as they live anymore. Christian values are quite different than those worldly values. And Christian values, they promote peace and, and, and goodwill among men in accordance with the purposes of God that He's established for us. These beatitudes, they provide a comforting vision for us. I mean, that, that there is a place where all wrongs will be righted and hope will prevail. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, a man that we consider the wisest man to have ever walked this earth outside of Christ himself, Solomon, he tells us that he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And you see, godly people, we seek out to live by God's eternal values in truth, beauty, goodness, love, and justice. And all these things are set forth as standards in Scripture of how we should live. And if we look to the world's morals and the world's values, I think we'll be confused with uh, self-interest, self-conditioning and social conditioning and, and situational ethics and whether or not it's relevant or not relevant to how we behave. The values of our culture, I think, really are shallow and subjective. There's nothing truth that is found within them. But the moral standards of the Bible that we see in Scripture they reflect for us God's unchanging and His unadulterated life and character. We can read in the Bible that it says that we are to be perfect as God is perfect. I've blown that. <laughs> and, and you're probably right there with me. We, we, we have blown that because of our sinfulness. We have missed the mark. That's what sin is, right? And the Bible says we are to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And it's at this juncture that we're confronted with our own failure to measure up to that standard. So this morning what I want us to do is focus on on just the very beginning of this wonderful sermon of Jesus. And, and we're going we're to take a look at Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses here, and what has become known as the Beatitudes. But first I think we need to discuss the Sermon on the Mount as God's design for success in humanity. If we're going to make it in this world and we're going to thrive and survive, we need to look at how he says we should do it. Before we're able to consider each beatitude separately, I think we need to understand that these statements they're not stepping stones to become a Christian. Matter of fact, they are the reality of the life of what a Christian or a Christ follower is to be living. Dr. Jordan Peterson he says that the Sermon on the Mount outlines the true nature of man and the proper aim of mankind. I mean, this is really what our nature is supposed to be like, but it's become corrupted because of sin. But if we were to boil down the way that we were created by God, this is the essence of who we really should be. The Christian life is not about behavior management, but it's about character transformation. That we are being changed. When I become a disciple of Christ, when I become a Christian, the old person of who I was is put to death. He's buried. John Wagner no longer lives. I died to myself when I became a Christian. I was buried in a watery grave of baptism. But when I came out there was a new creation. A new man was alive. He, he was not to bear with him the essence of the old man and that sinfulness, all right? It is supposed to be put away, and, and, and we no longer live as we did before. And therefore, the character of my earthly life before Christ is gone. And now, as Paul says, it is Christ who lives in me. This body is no longer mine, but it is his his way of life is a lot different than what we experience in this world. Now, before we dig into these a little bit, I, I think we need, to, we need to look at three aspects of our text that need to be discussed first. Who is he talking to? Who is he talking about, all right, when he's, when he's bringing up these, these aspects of character? Who are these people? Whom Jesus is describing, and what qualities is he commending them to possess? What does he want, why does he want them to look like this? And what are the blessings or these promises that he's offering at the end? Right? So in our passage of Scripture, Jesus is talking to those to begin with who are his disciples. So if you want to be a follower of Jesus, you've put your faith in him, he's speaking to you these are not just eight separate groups because there are eight different beatitudes and it's this person and that person. No, this is everybody who wants to be a disciple of Jesus. These are the attitudes, the character traits that we are to possess in ourselves. All right? all these qualities are here to help identify us as his followers just like the nine fruits of the Spirit that Paul will speak about in Galatians chapter 5 those are to be possessed by the Christ follower as well and as the Spirit grows in us those become the fruit or the actions in which do you display as well these traits also are supposed to be a part of who we are we must not understand we must also understand these qualities of life that Jesus expecting us to possess if we're going to be his disciples they're not meant to stand alone on their own but they build one upon the other and each each beatitude has the capacity to stand on itself but they are linked kind of progressively one after the other um, as as they are, are 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 moving forward kind of like you know if you're building a necklace and one pearl after the another until you have a beautiful pearl necklace these attitudes they come along together and they work well. Now the third aspect that we see in our text is that we need to examine is this word blessed? Or some translations may say happy, All right, It's not nearly as difficult for Jesus' audience at that time to understand what he was saying or the readers whom Matthew was writing to about this than it is possibly for us because we lose things in translations a lot of time, alright? Our modern idea of happiness, I think, is is diluted with versions of what makes us happy is based upon circumstances, conditions, possessions, those kinds of things. But instead, God's joy or God's blessedness, God's happiness, is not built upon or dependent upon circumstances. It's built upon Him And the assurance that he has for us, that he's going to fulfill his promises. Now, while our current circumstances can change, and therefore our happiness changes as well, for the Christian who possesses these attitudes, it doesn't matter what happens in the circumstances of life, that cannot remove your happiness and your blessedness. Spiritual joy and satisfaction last regardless of conditions. And to be blessed is what many of us seek. Unfortunately, what we're trying to seek, it we're looking at through our earthly blessings, uh, those things of possessions and money and power and relationships and, 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 and pleasures. But, but when we only seek the blessings of this world, that shows our fleshly side, our carnal side of life. A corruptible sinful mindset of mankind. And it proves that we have been deceived and we have been blinded by the things of this world that we can't see what it is to be renewed with the Spirit of God. Instead, Jesus focuses on the blessings that He bestows that the world cannot take away. Dr. Ernest... M. Ligon. He's from the Department of Psychology at Union College in Schenectady, New York. In his book entitled, The Psychology of Christian Personality, he tackles the Sermon on the Mount through a psychological and a psychiatric uh, position. He makes this statement. He says, The most significant mistake that men have made in interpreting these verses of Jesus is to failure to note the first word in each of them happy. Now, in Ligan's discourse as he goes through this this book, his view is that, that that these these happiness they constitute Jesus's theory of happiness. They are not so much ethical duties as a series of eight fundamental emotional attitudes that the Christian is to possess. And he says that basically if a man reacts to his environment in the spirit of these attitudes, his life is going to be one that is happy. Because he's going to basically have discovered the basis and the formula for real mental health. In particular, according to Dr. Ligon, the sermon emphasizes the forces of faith and love. Specifically, he will say experiential or experimental faith and fatherly love. He tells us that those two principles, he says, are indispensable for the development of strong and healthy personalities that we we need to understand what experimental faith is and what fatherly love is for us to honestly figure out how to live properly and to build us and strengthen us in our own personalities. And as we read through these beatitudes, these blessings, we need to understand that they have both a present and a future aspect to them. And in them we have the ability to enjoy the first fruits of of them in our current situation, but also the full harvest of them at the end of days in the second coming of Christ. So, enough said about that. Get ready to roll because we don't have a whole lot of time, all right? We're going to dig through these and we're going to look at these Beatitudes and we're going to discover that in this Sermon on the Mount, we discover that Jesus' vision for what His disciples are to be like. So this is Jesus telling us how we should live. First off, He says He was seeing a crowd. He went up on a mountain, all right? And then He sat down there. And his disciples came to them, and he opened his mouth, and then he begins to teach them. The first thing he teaches them is here in verse 3 of Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He taught his disciples to acknowledge those who lived in a spiritual poverty. He doesn't mean that the person has to be destitute or financially broke, but poor in spirit see that we need to acknowledge that that we have a helpless nature about us that we are not people who can just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and go on in life that we need salvation we need to be saved from ourselves and our reliance is on our creator to meet our every need now if, if we don't acknowledge this need then we face a life in an eternity that is separated from God We need Him in order to have this blessing of heaven. The blessings of life and eternity come only when we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And even after we have been saved, we must acknowledge that we are still no better off than anybody else. We've not amassed something that is great and significant. We still have to see ourselves in a humble attitude. No matter what we achieve in the world, it's only by and through the grace of God. He makes us, we don't. And so it's with this poor in spirit, this humbleness in our spirit, and our acknowledging our need and our reliance on Jesus, that then we can inherit the kingdom of heaven. The next attitude, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Now, we might even translate this beatitude as happy are the unhappy. All right? What? Well, we know when we're mourning, there's a, there's a sorrow, there's an unhappiness to us in life, but yet we're supposed to be happy when we're unhappy. And in order to draw attention to this this startling paradox that it contains, it implies that we, as we possess a broken heart, we find this blessing. It's like a deep mourning and a wailing that occurs over the death of someone we love dearly. It's sorrow. Desperate, helpless sorrow. Sorrow where things are outside of our control. It's a sorrow for my sin that now I am dead in sin because of what I've done. My brokenness because of the evil that I've allowed and the suffering that I go through. So who is it that is so full of grief that he cries and he weeps in utter distraught groanings that are deep within the person who is desperately sorry for his sins and his unworthiness of god jesus showed his disciples about a couple men who were at the temple to offer up their things and one guy was just very arrogant about the fact that he was unloading a whole bunch of money and another guy was in there and just beating his chest and saying forgive me a sinner have mercy on me. See, the person who really feels the desperate plight and the terrible sufferings not only of his own sin, but also of the of other people, that they are lost and that they are dying. That person who sees the tragedies and the problems and the sinful behaviors of others and, and they begin to mourn for their loss and for their death and their separation from Christ. It's only when we are convicted of sin that And it literally breaks our heart to think of how we have hurt God and how other people are hurting God that we can humbly confess our own sins before Him and we seek His forgiveness. And when we find ourselves in this state of mourning, then and only then are we comforted. Because you don't need to be comforted if you have no mourning in life. We're comforted with the peace of Christ, with the assurance of our forgiveness, and the joy of eternity. Consolation or comfort, according even to the Old Testament, was to be a character trait of Messiah when he came. He was to be the comforter. Matter of fact, when Jesus himself was even leaving, he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send one in my name who is going to bring you comfort. Next, we look at verse 5, and we discover, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now, meekness does not equal or mean weakness, all right? But it's, it's strength and power under control. We're to be strong, but we're also supposed to be tender and, and, and humble with a teachable spirit. It's not being spineless or, or cowering simpleton. Rather, it is a man who is extremely strong and confident in what he can do, yet he is humble and tender and gentle. I remember the first time as, 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 a, as a man that I actually held a baby most of the time of my life I avoided them, right? And, and, and they, they seem breakable. And you don't know how to, to, to do anything with them, so you're kind of just going kind to of sit there like this. Okay, now what? Because you're afraid if you move them, you might do something, all right? That is the aspect of meekness. While you could, waddle your baby up? You know, you don't. You're gentle. You're tender. It's the strength of a grown man who is gently taking care of something. Jesus even identifies himself in this manner. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and, and you will find rest for your souls. Now that word gentle here, That is the exact same word that we translate in our Matthew chapter 5 as meek. And it carries with it this idea of being humble. A humble spirit leads to inheriting the earth. And we might expect just the opposite. I mean, one would think that the meek people just get nowhere because everybody ignores them and walks over them or tramples them on their feet. But the spiritual condition which we enter into in our inheritance in Christ is not by might, but by meekness. And those who are meek, they're comfortable with themselves and where where God has placed them in life. They know that they are Christians and, and they are strong and confident in what God has done in and through them. But they understand it is only by God's grace keeping them gentle and humble. The reward for our meekness It may not seem like we rule the earth. But there is a new heaven and a new earth that God is preparing for us. And they govern it. It's theirs. We move to verse 6 and we discover in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Literally, it means people who have a starving spirit. All right? and a starvation of our soul. It's, it's a parched and a, and a dying thirst that I've got to have this. And so we can say that it is a starving spirit and a parched soul that craves righteousness, but there's something more. It's not just that they, they want to do things that are right and righteous. They want all righteousness, the fullness of righteousness The true believer is starved and parched for the righteousness that is only given by Christ. It's nothing that we can create on our own. It's nothing that we can earn on our own. But it's something that He has that we want to also have. It's His righteousness. And as Christians, we should crave a life that is filled with the righteousness of Christ emitting from us. These people not only want to be righteous, but they also want to then, because of the righteousness in them, to do righteous things. Now, I know that at times we may only want bits and pieces of righteousness for the moment. Just so that we can look good, to be satisfied for for that moment. And it gives us a, a sense of false security. We're never really full. We can't just believe in Jesus We have to live like Jesus. Remember I told you earlier that that as a Christian, you die to yourself. You are no longer to live as you. You are to live as Christ. I mean, that's what it means to become a Christian. You don't add Him to your life. Too many people do that. They say, yeah, I, I want to believe in God, so I'm going I'm to put him in this pocket, and when I need him, I will reach in deep down and pull him out, and then I can use him for my advantage. That's not it. He's not an addition to your life. He is your life. His righteousness, then, is what we are supposed to have invested so much in that it lives us now as as we look at this righteousness notice that Jesus doesn't say here blessed are the righteous in fact Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 that there's no one righteous not even one but Jesus says blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our chance to be righteous on our own is gone. We've blown it. We've missed that mark. But we have one hope. That God has loved us enough. That when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, and we're willing to not just add him to our life, but we're willing to die to ourselves for him that he gives us the righteousness that we need to stand before god we hunger and thirst after righteousness you see so seeking righteousness brings us this satisfaction this blessedness this contentment this peace and, and the actual word that is used here for satisfy carries with it the idea of being saturated Kind of like our ground is after this week of rain. It just can't contain anymore. right, So he's saying when you hunger and you thirst for the righteousness of God, what he's going to do is he is going to make that just boil out of you. Because it can't be contained anymore in your life. Matthew 7. He says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. He's speaking about those who have a forgiving spirit, compassionate heart and we're, we're to show mercy we're to show benevolence, we're to show forgiveness and, and many other things to those that we are around and we live with and it's a deliberate effort on our part an act of understanding another person and meeting their needs and being merciful to them and showing them mercy nothing proves more readily that we have been forgiven of our sins than our willingness to forgive other people's sins nothing proves that we have been received the mercy of God than us ourselves extending mercy to others Jesus himself will illustrate this very thing when he speaks a little parable about an unmerciful servant who was forgiven much, but then turned around and punished others who owed him little. He then flies in the face of the Pharisees about this aspect of mercy and forgiveness when he tells another parable about a good Samaritan who stopped by on this road from Jerusalem to Jericho and he helped a man who had been beaten we are to not only receive the mercy of God, but how then we relate to other people, we have to be merciful as well. Matthew 5.8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To have a a pure heart, a clean heart, an unsoiled heart, heart, unpolluted, unmixed, uh, 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 and and cleansed, purged, forgiven, and holy, to have a single purpose to be like Christ. That is what God glorifies in. And it does not mean that we are perfect, because we know that we aren't perfect. But it means to have pure motives behind the things that we are doing, because we're trying to live like Christ It's immediately obvious that the words he speaks, to have pure in heart, indicate the kind of purity that Jesus is alluding to. This aspect of being pure in spirit, now we have pure in heart. A pure heart is descriptive of, of one's innermost motivations of life. And these people are blessed with the ability to see God because of their loyalty to Him and their absolute integrity. And if we want to stand before God, our hearts must be pure. Even in the Old Testament, there was a precedent that was established there. You'll see it over and over again in the book of Psalms. It was recognized that no one could, could even ascend the hill of the Lord or could stand in the holy place unless he had clean hands and a pure heart. The emphasis really is on the inward aspect of the individual, not necessarily the outward cleanliness. The Pharisees in Jesus' day, whom he spoke to often, they had a problem with this Purity in heart, this inner innocence. As a matter of fact, Jesus would call them whitewashed tombs. And you look really pretty on the outside, but inside your heart and in your character, you're rotting away. You're dead. You're diseased. God told Samuel, as he was to anoint David king over Israel, he's looking at all these wonderful strapping young boys of Jesse, one after the other. They're big, they're tall, they're whatever. And he's, no, 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 no. not that one, not that one. You don't understand, Samuel. God does not look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. Only the pure in heart, Jesus says, will see God. I mean, now we see him with eyes of faith, but... One of these days, we're going to see him face to face in all of his glory. Matthew 5, 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I mean, these are people who are driven to make peace between men and God. To, to solve disputes and to reconcile the divisions, to erase the differences and eliminate the, the strife and, and to silence arguments and to build right relationships. This is a man who conquers the inner struggle and he centers the inner tensions of us and, 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 and the pressures that we have. He takes the struggle within his heart between good and evil and he strives to live for the good and to conquer the evil, to bring peace Every Christian, according to this beatitude, is meant to be a peacemaker, both in our community and in the church. Paul tells us that this was a major aspect of Jesus' ministry while he was here. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. For in him, that is Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Is that not what the angels proclaimed when they appeared there before those shepherds in the the fields outside of Bethlehem? Peace on earth? And Ephesians Paul writes this in chapter 2, verse 14 and 50, For he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the 2 so soul-making peace. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Matthew 5, So we kind of wrap this through, verses 10 through 12, he says, Blessed are those who persecute for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, as is the poor in spirit who were persecuted, those who are persecuted for righteousness, they also belong to the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's where he began. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For my sake, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, these people are those who endure suffering for Christ. Those people who are mocked and ridiculed and criticized, ostracized, who are treated wickedly with hostility, who are even, some of them are even martyred and killed because they align themselves with their faith in Jesus. This is an individual who lives and speaks for righteousness and people react against him. They live and speak for Christ and they are reviled and persecuted and slandered because they're trying to be faithful to Jesus. See, persecution comes not because of their own sinfulness, not because of their own selfish ambition, but rather because they're connected to Jesus. If you're a Christian, if you had decided that you're going to follow Jesus, I need you to hear me you will be persecuted now that doesn't mean that you'll be killed for your faith but there is going to be a point in your life where others who are not in Christ are going to look at you because of your faith and they're going to look at you with disdain and hatred and they are going to go against you You see if Christ suffered persecution, then if we have become like Him and we allow Him and His Spirit to live in us, we will suffer too. And it's simply because of this our sinful world does not know God or Christ. I mean our girls just told us, they they went to Poland and they met quite a few people who have never heard about Jesus. There is a world who doesn't know him. Christian persecution continues even today all around our world. Now, from the estherproject.com, I pulled these statistics this week. There are 322 Christians who are killed for their faith each month in our, year, in our world. Did you catch that? Monthly. At least the average is 322 Christians are killed because they believe in Jesus. 214 churches or church properties are destroyed in our world each month because they're connected to Christ. 722 acts of violence. Now, that, that may be displayed either in they're being beat. They are abducted, they are raped, they are arrested, or they are forced in in marriages that are outside their faith. Every month around our world, this is taking place. Matter of fact, there are more than 60 countries where their governments persecute or allow the persecution of Christians to take place freely. The top 10 countries in our generation right now where Christian persecution is taking place? The next slide, please. North Korea, Somalia, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Eritrea. And the list can go on and on and on. You know what? That's where the gospel of Christ needs to go, and it needs to make a difference, and it needs to change the hearts of those people. Yet in spite of all the persecution that is taking place all around our world, Christians are the most blessed people on earth. The Beatitudes, they paint a a complete portrait of the disciple of Christ. First, they show him on his knees before God, acknowledging his own spiritual poverty that he's poor in spirit and that he is mourning over it. And it makes him meek and gentle in all of his relationship since honesty compels him to allow others to think of him as they want to think of him because he confesses his own sinfulness to God. Yet he is far from acquiescing to his sinfulness For he hungers and he thirsts after righteousness, longing to grow in peace and the grace and the goodness of God. So we see Christians all around the world living in association with others in society. Their relationship with God does not cause him to withdraw from society, nor is he protected from the pains that this world might inflict on him. But on the contrary, a Christian is always right in the thick of it showing mercy to those who are damaged by the adversity of sin. They are transparently sincere in all their dealings, and they seek to play a constructive role as peacemakers in our world. Yet, they're not going to be thanked for their efforts. But rather, they're going to be opposed, they're going to be slandered, they're going to be beaten, they're going to be insulted, and they're going to be persecuted. On account of their own righteous acts in following Christ. Such a man and a woman is blessed, and such goes the counterculture of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.